We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. Uh, this week, we'll be talking... Dun, 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 CONCACAF Champions League final coming to you from Orlando, Florida. Oh my goodness. Uh, on the verge of potentially some American soccer history. Uh, so we'll be talking all about that. We'll be talking about Spurs and up and down of Spurs. The up and down, speaking of up and down, up and down of Manchester United, the Ripper, Christmas cookies, and so much more. But first joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, December 21st in the year 2020? I am doing well. I'm excited to be doing a podcast with you today. It was touch and go there for a minute. It was. I am uh, on the road. Uh, and actually, I will be live at the main event uh, that I mentioned, CONCACAF Champions League uh, final in Orlando, Florida. But it has thrown a little, uh, you know, a, a problem into our actual recording. We almost didn't go, but I, I said, no, the people have to have our State of the Union. And so I'm going to find a way. So we are uh, you know, we are uh, duct taping this one together. So please apologies if there are any um, audio or video uh, technical problems. Uh, we are just trying to make the best of the situation here. But uh, hopefully you can hear us and, and all of our glory is at least being heard, maybe even seen. But thank you guys for uh, for putting up with the uh, technical difficulties uh, out there. Mossy, uh, how was your week, my friend? Anything interesting happened? Yeah, not bad. I, I kind of got back on the television uh, tip. I know when you asked me last week, I said I wasn't watching anything, but uh, I did watch Mank, which I thought was terrific. And, and then I watched two excellent Netflix documentaries, uh, one titled 1994, about this tumultuous year in Mexico in which a presidential candidate, Luis Donaldo Colosio, was assassinated, and another called The Ripper, which is about the Yorkshire Ripper, this uh, serial killer in England in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, found both very compelling, uh, really enjoyed them, highly recommend them. I too watched The Ripper. Uh, we had talked about Mank a couple weeks ago, so I, I, I'm interested that, uh, that, you, that you liked it. I thought it, was, I thought it was okay, I thought it was interesting. 
But when it comes to the Ripper, I, I'm, I'm interested to, th to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, look, it, there's plenty of documentaries out there about serial killers and our fascination with, uh, you know, with, with the like. I had not heard about this. Um, and given the, the prolific nature of this, of this person and the monstrosity that uh, he ultimately was, it, 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 and it happened back in the 70s, so, but it was interesting, the archival footage and everything that happened there. There was a weird detour, Mossy, and tell me if you, if you didn't see it and pick up on it, but there was a weird detour in where, I think it was actually the filmmaking much more than the actual content, where they went into this whole thing about the era and the time and the the uh, the women's liberation type of of moment and how that impacted and affected the case and the investigation and how the women at the time in uh, in Yorkshire how they looked at the way the case was being done um, but it was they didn't really I don't think that they really grasped the uh, the relevancy and the importance of that of that moment in the way that they they made the actual film so that that put me off a little bit. I found myself scratching my head as to, you know, why this this was part of it. And they, they didn't really make that clear for me. I don't know if you had the same uh, reaction. No, I did. It was a very brisk telling of the story, only four episodes. And you felt like there were certain directions where they could have delved a little bit deeper. And yet there were almost some echoes to what we're going through in this country in 2020 of people being told they have to stay home for their own safety mm -hmm. and sort of rebelling against that. And I'm sorry, but I found the police incompetence to be maddening. The idea that you would receive a tape from somebody claiming to be the Ripper and without any sort of confirmation, just assuming that it is, and because the person had a Geordie accent, you would then discount anybody that had such an accent to the point where they actually, I don't wanna spoil it for people, but they actually interviewed the, the guy who turned out to be the killer years earlier, and a policeman who interviewed him, they had a, a sketch of him and he kind of put it together and said, boy, this guy looks exactly like the guy. He might be him. And then he goes to one of his superior officers and points this out. And, and the superior officer is like, well, if he doesn't have a Geordie accent, then cross him off the list then. And that I found all that stuff maddening. It was it was very, very uh, strange. And, and to your point, yes, it pointed out the absolute ineptitude of <laughs> of the police force at the time. And look, I know it's easy from the 2020 lens to, to look back and say, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do, uh, they do this? But there were some just elementary type of things that were uh, that, that were messed up. And the way, and, and look, once again, we don't want to spoil it for, for anybody, and you should watch it. It's, it's, it's a really interesting and compelling type of documentary. But the way, you know, the, the, a lot of these murders um, happened to, to prostitutes. And the way that the prostitutes and that whole um, culture and lifestyle was portrayed and was used at times to downplay the seriousness and the importance of it. That, I thought that was really, really interesting in how they went about how they went about that and that it was prostitutes elicited a certain type of response from the general public. And then when it started getting into young women that weren't prostitutes, how it kind of flipped and it became much more prominent and much more of a story and much more a terror, if you will, that was going on. So anyway, that's a, that's a good one uh, to check out. Anything else, Mossy, before we get into our, uh, our soccer podcast? That's it. All right. As always, are you ready to light this candle? Yep. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a holiday candle. All right. This will be our last, uh, our last episode before, uh, before the holidays. And, uh, as such, we got, uh, we got fireworks and we have them in the form of the CONCACAF Champions League. Uh, there, there is, you know, as, as Princess, uh, 
uh, Leah was uh, you know, talking about the only hope that we have. Well, the only hope that from an MLS and American soccer perspective that we have right now is LAFC, who found a way through to the final after, oh my gosh, Mussy, how do I, how do I explain and describe the game that uh, ultimately ended up being the semifinal win for LAFC? It was incredibly... It was, it's a, it was a classic CONCACAF type of matchup in the, uh, to use the vernacular, the shithousery that was going on on a constant basis between LAFC and America. There was everything and more that you love and hate about CONCACAF uh, in terms of the player actions, in terms of the referee actions, but ultimately when all was said and done, LAFC, despite being down a man, we'll talk about the red card in a second, ultimately came out with the result. And it was a huge result. It was the third uh, Mexican team that LAFC has gone through, which means that now going to the final and facing Tigres, if they are to win, it would mean that they would have gone through four different uh, Liga MX teams, which is a feat in itself. Mossy, just initial thoughts on that game and the fact that once again, we have a final in the CONCACAF Champions League that does feature an MLS team. And keep in mind that in the current format, no MLS team has ever uh, has, has ever been champions of our region. And for people who don't know, CONCACAF Champions League decides the club team that is uh, the champions for CONCACAF, our region, which is North uh, Central and uh, the Caribbean, uh, North America, Central America, and the and the Caribbean. Mossy, uh, uh, initial takes on that game. Well, I'll give you a take on the CCL in general. When this competition began back in February, we talked on this podcast about how the League MX MLS uh, thing was red hot because you had complexes both ways. MLS obviously trying to slay this dragon and finally uh, win CCL. And also in Mexico, they have a big bug up their ass over this exodus of League MX players to MLS, including Lucas Elrayan, who was just the MLS Cup MVP, and also all these big name Mexican players that have been choosing to come to MLS just this year, Chicharito, Rodolfo Pizarro, Alan Pulido, Osvaldo Alaniz, Jurgen Dahm, obviously uh, before that, Carlos Vela. Um, and so it made things very interesting. And then right as we were getting going, the pandemic hits, it shuts down for nine months and we come back in an empty stadium in Orlando. And I kind of wondered if there was going to be any real juice here or if the circumstances had kind of sapped any meaning from this thing. I have to say there's been an incredible amount of juice. I've loved watching these CCL games and the whole League MX MLS thing is really percolating. I've been following the Mexican media the last few days, watching shows like Football Picante, and it is a hot topic down there. The growth of MLS, are they catching up? Are they passing? us by what's going on there's one type of mexican pundit that's that bristles at that and is still very dismissive of mls and then there's others that recognize all the progress mls is making i know our colleague rodolfo landeros got into it on twitter with people because a lot of mexicans felt like he was being too positive towards mls and so they accused him of being anti-patriotic and betraying his country and so he pushed back against that so it's really created a a, a, a dynamic here where I've gotten thoroughly excited to watch these games. And yeah, that, that LAFC America game was, was very compelling, but in the end, the right team won because, you know, although I'm not somebody that gets 
really up in arms about the sort of chicanery that that uh, America pulled in that game. Uh, I did feel like LAFC was the better team, and it would have been kind of a crime if they got knocked out because of that a twist a red card. And so, and by the way, LAFC are trying to get that overturned. And so, I do feel like in the end, the right team won that game. America were awful in this competition. They were terrible against Atlanta. I thought very poor against LAFC. So they did not deserve to be in the final here. And the right team is in the final playing against Tigres. Wow. Okay. So I've been asked over the last couple of weeks, why does this matter? And so here's the reason why CONCACAF Champions League matters, even in 2020. Okay. Winning CONCACAF Champions League from an MLS perspective matters because it is seen by many as this litmus test that is to be used when judging quality and the hierarchy uh, that exists for teams and leagues in in, uh, CONCACAF. And, you know, at Mossy, as we say all the time, that that battle for American soccer fans' hearts and minds continues. And so, you know, this is is a checked box that that has remained unchecked for a long time, but it is a necessary uh, check. Having a MLS team as uh, CONCACAF Champions League champions for the first time, as I said, in the modern format and the way that it, that it is, it isn't a silver bullet. It doesn't automatically make MLS better than Liga MX, but it's just one less uh, weakness for a lot of other people to point to and one more hurdle that is cleared in this quest and this ongoing quest for credibility and relevance, uh, not just you know, not just from uh, credibility and relevance outside, but even at home from those people that you are trying to win. And I will say this, though, if LAFC wins uh, in this final and becomes uh, CONCACAF Champions League champions and represents CONCACAF in the uh, Club World Cup, I think that the unique aspects of 2020 will be used by many, both in MLS and, and in Liga MX, to disqualify and to devalue the achievement in a certain way. Because that 2020 asterisk, Mossy, that we talk about so much, it is real. And and I'll I'll be honest, it is fair. But if LAFC does win, it's a title that you cannot take away. It is that check mark. And, you know, (laughs) they will have beaten, like I said, four Liga MX teams in a row. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter if there's a pandemic or anything. That in and of itself would be an incredible feat uh, and worthy of the praise and the celebration and the honor of being that first uh, that, that first team. Uh, okay, Mossy, does it happen though? Is LAFC, do you think that they are capable of beating a very, very good Tigres team in the, in the final? Uh, I do think they're capable. And just to, to your very last point there, I do want to push back against anybody that would try to diminish this accomplishment. Uh, as we've talked about throughout 2020, a game in an empty stadium at a neutral venue is almost more reflective of who the better team is. And you know what? They they knocked out Leon over two legs back at the start of the year. A Leon team that, by the way, just won the Torneo Guardianes. And and then to go on a, on a neutral field and beat Cruz Azul, América, and Tigres, if they're able to pull that off, I'm sorry. I don't know how 
anybody could pull Coles into that. To me, they would be a 100% legitimate CCL winner and it would be absolutely historic and worthy of celebration what they achieved. And, but th this is going to be the toughest test of all. Tigres are a very, very good team. And, you know, uh, they uh, Tigres are a team that they're managed by a, a fellow Rio de Janeiro native, native Ricardo Ferretti, who you might recall uh, managed Mexico briefly on an interim basis back in 2015 and actually coached them in that CONCACAF Cup match at the Rose Bowl against the U.S., a playoff to determine who would represent CONCACAF in the uh, Confederations Cup. And Mexico won an extra time thriller that day. And he's a guy that's been at Tigres for 10 years, and he's guided them through what's been a golden age domestically, but they've failed to crown it with a major international trophy. They lost a Libertadores final, and they've lost three CCL finals. So we talk about an MLS team trying to finally break through in this competition. There's an element of that with Tigres as well. This is a hump they're trying to get over. And, and, and again, just a very, very good team led by, uh, you know, probably the best center forward in Liga MX in Andre Pierre Gignac, who it's such a fascinating story that a Frenchman at the point in his career that he was in would decide to come to Mexico and to have the success that he's had and become basically a legend in Mexico. He did in doing so pretty much sacrifice his international career because he hasn't played for France for years. Um, and, but nevertheless, he's a terrific player. And so this is a great, great final. I would make Tigres slight favorites, but I absolutely give LAFC a chance. To your point, uh, you know, having a, a, a Frenchman who is leading this team, uh, this Liga MX team, and like you said, has become a legend in the process down there. And it is, it is a unique type of situation. Um, I, I was asked uh, I, uh, on Twitter earlier uh, about does it does it take something away in that in that LAFC is riding Carlos Vela, a you know Mexican uh, legend when it comes to the game, and and no, I mean we look at all of the different great teams out there, you know they all are uh, populated with players from all over the place. I mean Bayern Munich relies on Lewandowski and. Uh, you can go down the line in terms of, uh, of that happening. So I, I don't think that it takes anything away. But, you know, once again, that's kind of that insecurity that's uh, that's there. And look, Carlos Vela has now made it made a name for himself in Major League Soccer. And I think will go down as one of the great players ever to play in Major League Soccer and really has become identifiable with uh, with LAFC. It was interesting to see him now kind of come back into uh, into form, if you will, and be the Carlos Vela that we remember from last year and kind of start to carry this team. Because for the most part, Mossy, he's taken 2020 uh, off and didn't participate really in the Major League Soccer season. And obviously came, when he came back, he had some injuries. Um, and so this is, if you're going to have your guns blazing at the, at the proper time, this is the, this is the right time. But I do agree with, uh, with you. Now, what's interesting also, Mossy, is this is not the first MLS team that's been in a CONCACAF Champions League final. And what has changed, though, is the way other MLS teams and other MLS fan bases now look at a team. There was a time where it was all kind of kumbaya and uh, it was MLS for insert your team, RSL or, or uh, Montreal, whoever was in, in the final. Uh, there is a lot. Of, there are a lot of MLS teams. And this is this is fine. This is absolutely absolutely human that don't want LAFC to be that first because there is a, an element of pride of 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 planting that flag. Now, general fans and MLS in general wants an MLS team to do it. And th so that would be good to once again, check off that box. But there's a lot of teams out there. I don't think that there's going to be a groundswell of support for LAFC in this final from a lot of other MLS teams there. It's not that, not they, that if LAFC doesn't win, they're not going to congratulate them. But it has changed over the years in terms of the 
the collective being very, very supportive. And now it's about your individual brand, because if it's LAFC, they're going to get to say they did something historic. And as I said, something that, that hasn't been done by an MLS team in terms of being the champions of CONCACAF since back in, uh, what was it, 2000 uh, era. And so, you know, 20 years, and certainly in this type of format, uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun to see. I will be reporting uh, uh, for digital down there, so I can't wait to to actually be there. And hopefully, I'll be there as part of American history if LAFC. And certainly, I'm rooting for LAFC. I would I would love to see that uh, that happen. But like you said, Mossy, they got their hands full against a very very good team. Um, anything else CCL wise you want to hit, Mossy? Uh, no, that's it. Can't wait for this final. Uh, have fun down there. Okay, a um, couple other uh, MLS-ish type of things that uh, I wanted to just throw by you and see what you thought. Uh, MLS came out with their goal of the of the history of MLS. We know we're celebrating or just got finished celebrating the 25 years of MLS. And they came out with the, the greatest goal voted on as the best in MLS history. And it was the Zlatan, let's say, 45-yard volley to basically announce his arrival and his presence with uh, the Los Angeles Galaxy. Agree or disagree, Mossy? Well, look, you and Rob Stone had to endure my rants all season long whenever we named that AT&T goal of the week. Uh, I do feel like there's a bias towards long-distance shots and not enough respect given to uh, goals that come about through nice team moves or a player dribbling past a couple of defenders and rounding the keeper and slotting home. So I'm not surprised that this kind of goal won. It's a defensible choice. Look, it was an incredible moment. And when you factor in the circumstances, Laton, his first game, El Trafico, it's a totally defensible choice. Although I must confess, it's not even my favorite Zlatan goal from that season. I kind of prefer the other one where there was a ball floated into the box and he acrobatically redirected into the goal. I thought that was one of the more incredible goals I've ever seen. Uh, and then, you know, if you're talking long distance strikes, I love that Di Rosario free kick where he put that, you know, Roberto Carlos against France type of bend on it. Yep. Uh, and also you could make a case if you want to pick out one goal that really captures the zaniness of MLS, it would be that DC United goal, the closing seconds of the game where Rooney tackles the player in his own half and then and then that crossfield ball that gets headed in. So you could almost make a case for that. It's not the most aesthetically beautiful goal, but just in terms of capturing the zaniness of MLS. So I don't know. What did you make of it? I'm good with it. I'm okay with uh, the decision. Uh, and, I, and I think, yes, it has to be something spectacular, but what makes it spectacular is the moment, is the theater. And look, you, you need to go no further than Zlatan for that that, that star and that platform and for him to come on and to basically and to, to change that game and to do it in the way that he did that was that's what a star is and you know you love him or hate him you had to pay attention to him and so I, I'm okay with that but you're you're absolutely right I mean we can go through although it's De Rosario goal I mean I remember goals back with John Woliak scoring a goal from like a 70-yard long ball down the field that he takes out of the air with one touch and puts it in the upper 90. So there's there's all sorts of goals. But I think, you know, Zlatan wasn't here in MLS long, but he made his mark and he was worth the price of admission for the things that he did. And in the biggest moments, you know, when all the spotlight was on him, he, he stepped up. And that was that was the ultimate Hollywood type of moment. And then it happened in real life and wasn't a script and wasn't a, a scene, just made it that much more spectacular. So I'm okay with that. Um, thoughts on uh, Gabriel Heinze being named as the Atlanta United head coach. This was rumored for a long time, uh, but uh, initial thoughts, Mossy. 
Well, uh, this is Atlanta United going back to, and, and this is a name that we're going to talk about later on in the podcast as well, the Marcelo Bielsa tree, mm-hmm. because uh, Gabriel Hines fancies himself a Bielsa disciple, which uh, Tata Martino uh, does as well. So after the failed Frank DeBoer experiment, this is them going down that path again. Yeah, Gabriel Hines, um, a player who had a very distinguished uh, playing career, clubs like Manchester United, Real Madrid, over 70 caps for Argentina, made his debut under Bielsa with the national team, played in multiple World Cups, and then has become sort of a hot up-and-coming manager in South American football, he's been managing Vélez Sarsfield. He, uh, interestingly enough, was actually linked with Palmeiras of Brazil a couple of months ago, was a heavy favorite to get that job. And, and then Palmeiras went a different direction. They hired this Portuguese guy, Abel Ferreira. But uh, in reading the articles in Brazil, the, the two things that dissuaded Palmeiras from hiring Heinz were that he's a very fiery character that can butt heads with players. And Palmeiras felt like they needed more of a player's coach for their roster. And also Heinz was a guy that wanted total control over transfers. So I don't know if he's also asked for that with Atlanta, but it's going to be interesting to see how that goes, if he can fit into the framework of that organization. But uh, no, I think it's a, it's a hire that makes plenty of sense to me. And uh, I think he, he could be the coach to get that, that club back on track. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a no-brainer in terms of getting it back on that track that we've talked about. I think it's an admission that they made a mistake. There was a deviation, not just in terms of personnel, but I think in philosophy. And they recognized that that was, that was a mistake. And, you know, you make mistakes, and you, you got to correct them. And I think that this is a course correction that hedges your bets, especially with that, uh, that, that connection that you have with South America, and in particular that region uh, from talent and you need somebody there that attracts that type of talent and is going to continue to attract that type of talent. So we'll see how that goes. The Greg Vanny to Los Angeles Galaxy, it looks to be a, 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 a done deal. Nothing, uh, nothing official yet, but uh, as, we've te- as we've said before, uh, the, only, the only thing that we have to judge Greg Vanny on is his time with uh, Toronto, which was incredibly successful and was in many ways a super club-ish type of experience with high-priced uh, uh, types of players, and ultimately he was successful, but he has only been successful in one place, and so the jury will still be out as to whether that can translate to a team like the Los Angeles Galaxy, which we all know, you know, in the in, in the best of times has pressure, uh, but it is not the best of times, so he's got, if, if it's going to be Greg Vanny, he's got, uh, you know, he's got a lot on his plate to fix a LA Galaxy team, and this is not about long-term projects with the Los Angeles Galaxy. you got to fix it. you got to fix it quick and get it back to where they expect to be. Uh, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, we're going to take a small break. When we come back, we'll do a little bit of uh, our European roundup and see some things that were going on over there that uh, tickled our fancy. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hello, State of the Union listeners. It is Alexi Lawless here to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com, reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead and download the new app now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and website, you'll see the top stories in sports, plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. You can favorite your favorite teams and players so you'll never miss an important update. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. 
For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our European Roundup. We're not going to you know, go deep into uh, every single league and every single team and every single event, but just a few that, uh, uh, that uh, caught our attention out there. Uh, Mossy, okay, so it seems like every single week, my good friend uh, Brian Dunseth, who is a huge uh, Manchester United supporter, uh, the, the roller coaster of emotions as to are we good, aren't we good? Is Ole the man? Is he not the man? Are we back? Are we not really back when it comes to Manchester uh, Manchester United? I don't think anybody, including myself, has the answers to those questions. And the ultimate question is, are they contenders or are they pretenders here? Mossy, thoughts on this? I don't think they're going to win the Premier League title this season. And to be honest, I can't visualize Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being the manager to topple Liverpool, topple City, win a Premier League title, get United back to being one of the elite in Europe, challenging for Champions League titles as well, going toe-to-toe with the Bayerns and Real Madrid. So I, can't, I don't think he's quite that good. But I will say, in this chaotic post-Fergie era, he's been a stabilizing force, and I think he's got that club at least headed back in the right direction again. Uh, they are right now in, in third place in the Premier League, five points behind Liverpool, but they've played one fewer game. So if they win that game in hand, they would be in second, two points behind. And the graphic that United fans can't get enough of is what the Premier League table looks like since Bruno Fernandes arrived. Bruno Fernandes played his first game for United on February 1st, 2020. And if you take it from that point forward, the, the end of last season versus the start of this season, it encapsulates 27 rounds, about two-thirds of a Premier League campaign. And United and Liverpool are like right there, toe-to-toe at the very top. So so United fans are drawing a lot of strength from that. And, and yeah, I, I, I do like that hold team. On, hold 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 yep. on. So the strength of United's fans, this super club, this... <laughs> This, monst- this monstrosity uh, when it comes to the money generated, the impact, the relevance that this team has. They are taking the fact that they actually got a signing correct as indication that they are finally headed in the right direction? Yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah, they, they kind of want to draw a line. There's <laughs> before and after Bruno Fernandes, right. and they feel like that that's sort of the turning point upward. And so if you only look at that period, they've kind of matched Liverpool virtually point for point. So, uh, and, and, and by the way, all this United enthusiasm now is coming off a 6-2 demolition of Leeds United, who are managed by the great Marcelo Bielsa. Uh, that game prompted an interesting uh text from you uh, as you were watching it. Uh, I, I had it up here. You said Bielsa is a genius because he sits <laughs> on a bucket. And, and to be fair, you were not the only one making snarky remarks like that. This became, uh, you know, uh, Marcelo Bielsa is a very polarizing figure. He has his his lovers like me, but he also has his haters who kind of bristle at the whole notion that he's some sort of genius. And 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 the haters really had their fun this weekend. This became another weekend to really kind of relitigate the whole Bielsa thing. So were you just being cheeky there, or do you actually think that uh, it's time we start reevaluating what's the fuss over this man? I, I was yes, of course I was being cheeky. Um, and, and keep keep in mind. I think Bielsa is great because of 
the quirkiness, um, the the romantic uh, element of him, the you know the the unique aspect of this coach uh, and this manager relative to to many others out there, and he sets himself apart both in in the way that he goes about the business and ultimately the results. Because it doesn't matter how interesting or quirky or romantic you are, ultimately you have to be able to find a way to have that system get results. And and he has and he has certainly done that. But you know, I mean when I when I watch that game, at, at a certain point, if you are not competitive, and they weren't even competitive in that game, then you have to then the romance only gets you so far and people and that you know it's like uh it's like uh crash you know the uh the the fungus on your shower shoes okay (laughs) if you're hitting and you're doing well then it's great okay but as soon as you don't then nobody nobody cares that you're eccentric and you're different okay and as a matter of fact you're only drawing attention to the fact that it's not it's not working i don't think necessarily that 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 that's where we are when it comes to Bielsa, but you know the what's the first what's the first shot that we see when Leeds plays and Bielsa is coaching? It's him sitting on, and it's not even a a, a, a bucket anymore. Now it's like a, uh, a a branded bucket, and he's got a uh, <laughs> you know a little cushion on it and everything right now. So it's it it is part of the mythology of uh, of him and part of that brand that he has, but. You know, if you go out there and you get your ass handed to, which is what happened, you're going to come in for some, some criticism. Look, I, I look, I, I ran around with a goatee down to my uh, down to my chest. Okay, when it went great, it was wonderful. You got all the attention, and when it didn't, people started to question. You know, you're you're all about the way you look and all and and all that. So it's a real fine line and a balance right now. And I'm not willing to give up yet on Bielsa because you know, look, as despite my gruff exterior, Mossy. I am at my core, as I often say, a romantic, and I can appreciate and I can appreciate that. But that's the snark or the cheekiness of that text to you was the fact that this genius, <laughs> who everybody tells me is a genius, was getting his ass handed to uh, in the moment. So anyway, that that was that was my reaction. You're still, but you're still 100% Bielsa. I am, yeah. And I actually read an interesting article uh, positing the theory that there is a method to his madness. Um, most teams when they get promoted to the Premier League, uh, they adopt a pragmatic approach because they're just hoping to survive and stay in there while Bielsa actually has visions of turning Leeds into a power. And so what he's doing this season is a calculated risk. By playing with this reckless abandon, uh, he thinks they can they can still stay up uh, playing that way. And they're 14th right now. They're seven points above the drop zone. And he thinks that'll actually make them more attractive to players to want to go there. And then once he adds really talented players, he won't have to switch up the system from a pragmatic approach to a more expansive one. They, they will have already been playing expansively. And so it'll be sort of easier to just sort of plug in better players. And so we'll see if that all pans out. But that's kind of his master plan over the next couple of years. At least this one article I read uh, sort of posited that theory. So it'd be kind of interesting to see how it all plays out. Jeez, it's, it, it, it seems like it's a lot of work to love Bielsa. <laughs> All right, but it's a, it's a labor of love, I guess. Um, all right, anything else uh, on uh, on that? How about uh, how about Spurs, Mossy? Once again, well, <laughs> this is crazy. 
Go ahead. Another manager who is a lightning rod, and we should, you know, I, I know it's been several days now, but we should revisit the whole Mourinho Klopp episode at the end of that Liverpool-Tottenham game. So Liverpool win 2-1, thanks to a Roberto Firmino header late. And when uh, Mourinho and Klopp go f- for, you know, what is usually just sort of a normal, cordial shaking of hands between the managers, Mourinho uh, makes a snarky remark to Klopp. He says, the better team lost today. And 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 so a little bit of a of a craziness ensues there, and 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 everybody was debating sort of the, the afterwards the merits of what Mourinho said, and also is that just a weird move during the handshake to try to slip a comment like that in there? Uh, what did you make of that whole thing? I've said before, and I will say again, uh, I do not want a contrite and humble and dare I say respectful Mourinho. That is not the character and the personality and the role that he has cultivated and I think works best for him. So it, it, it didn't surprise me in the least. And look, this is also his MO. He, he recognizes that his team lost, which is going to bring heat. He deflects that heat onto himself by saying something that he knows myself and everybody else is going to eat up and it is going to ultimately be the story as opposed to the fact that I mean, and to be fair to him, his team may have played well. And, and there, there are certainly points that you can look at and say they had the game and they hit the post uh, at one point and they had their opportunities. But ultimately, they lost the game. And by the way, speaking of the ultimate pragmatic type of approach, it is uh, Jose Mourinho, okay? And what he does, ultimately, he likes to show up the numbers of what he has won and everything. It's not. A, it's not. It's rarely about how he wins. It's about the fact that he ultimately wins, and he will be the first to tell you tell you that. And he didn't win the other day. And by the way, he followed it up with another loss. Yeah. So I, I was okay. I, I was okay with that. Did it? It didn't bother you, did it? Well, look, Jose Mourinho is not the first manager to lose a game in which he thought uh, his team was better and deserved to win. And if he wants to make that point in all the post-match interviews afterwards, that's fine. And Klopp does that, Pep does that, everybody does that. But I will say, on the handshake there at the final whistle, that is a weird move to lean in and say to Klopp, better team lost today. And you could tell Klopp had this look of like, what? I mean, so I thought that, that was a little bit of weird timing there. And in terms of like the merits of what he's saying, look, Jose Mourinho... Jose Mourinho teams are fundamentally reactive, while teams like Liverpool and City are fundamentally proactive. And so you're always going to be a bit more partial to the team that you think is actually trying to score, has more of the ball, is committing men forward, is providing more of the offensive impetus in the game, as opposed to the team that's playing on the counter. Even if sometimes a game plays out a certain way where the team on the counter actually has the clear chances, which if you want to just reduce it to clear-cut chances, then what do you actually has a case? Because certainly in the second half, as you mentioned, Tottenham had some incredible opportunities to score. Bergwijn hit the post, but it didn't come about through any real great attacking play on their part. It was just sort of clearances where the ball was flicked in the path of a striker or a sloppy giveaway by Liverpool in their own half. So you still felt like watching that game, like all the offensive impetus was on Liverpool's side and they were the ones being the aggressors. And so when it comes time to determine who was the quote unquote better team, who quote unquote deserved to win, people are always going to be more partial to the team they felt was the aggressor that was trying to score. And so, you know, Mourinho can get mad about that, but that's just the way people view the game. And I will say it's interesting. Years ago, 
there, there's a story that years ago, there was a, a Premier League uh, sponsors event uh, that Mourinho attended in which some Premier League bigwig was going to give a speech at mm-hmm. the end of the night extolling the virtues of the Premier League. And he was going to have a line in which he was going to tout the fact that the Premier League has the greatest managers in the world, like Pep and Mourinho and Conti and Klopp. And Mourinho supposedly got wind of that and made uh, the guy take Klopp's name out of that sentence because he said he doesn't belong in the same category as the other guys. And there's this feeling that Mourinho's always had a bug up his ass about Klopp. Now, I'm sure he's gained some begrudging respect for him the last couple of years. In fact, when, when Liverpool won the Champions League, then they knocked out Barcelona in the fashion they did in the semifinals. Mourinho was working as a television commentator, and he did lavish Klopp with praise. But nevertheless, there's still something there. You could tell it irks him that Klopp is such a beloved figure. They're roughly the same age. They began their manager careers around the same time. Mourinho was in late 2000. Klopp was in early 2001. And I'm sure he looks at his resume. He's won 25 trophies. Klopp's won nine. And why is it that he always has to defend his record and it's seen as this manager who's Game has passed them by, while Klopp is this beloved figure. So there's definitely something there with Mourinho and Klopp, where he, he Mourinho has a bit of a complex towards Klopp. Well, the reason why he has to defend it is because he lost. Okay, so my, my friend Mike Seal, who's a, uh, a uh, wonderful comedian uh, and host, and, and he actually hosts a, 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 a podcast called Travel Tales, and I've been on that. But he is a huge Spurs fan. And before these last two losses, he texted me, as a lot of Spurs fans out there uh, are thinking, he was, wow, this is it. It's, it's actually happening. It's all coming together. And I told him at the time, that, like, keep in mind, this is before the last couple of losses here. And I told him, hey, winter is coming in the form of the, you know, the holiday period. And all sorts of crazy things can happen uh, going forward. So uh, let's leave it here, Mossy, but I want to get your take. Is this, is this a blip? Or is this a real problem when it comes to Spurs? Because there's a lot of Spurs fans, including my friend Mike, who said, this is the season. This is it. I think it's a blip. Uh, I I like that team. I think they're going to be in the mix until the very end. I still like Liverpool to win the Premier League, but I I would put Tottenham right there as one of the two or three teams right below them that could make things interesting. All right. Uh, Mike also, uh, when he texted me, said he loves you. Okay, I get that a lot from people. So you're, whatever you're doing, keep doing it, my friend. Uh, the, the people out there dig you. They really, really dig you. Okay. Uh, anything else uh, over there in, uh, in, in, in England? we got a couple other uh, big, big picture type of things to talk sure. about here. But anything else uh, yeah, you wanted to hit? Just one more thing, that, which is, uh, and I don't want to bag on Arsenal every week, but uh, this weekend was a bit of an interesting marker <laughs> because uh, they lost to Everton 2-1 at Goodison Park. And it was exactly the one-year anniversary of when Everton hired Ancelotti and Arsenal hired Arteta. And it's, in fact, virtually a year ago to the day of when Everton played Arsenal at Goodison Park, they played to a nil-nil draw. Ancelotti and Arteta, having just been hired, watched that game from the press box just a few feet from each other. And, and it, it was interesting, if you hearken back to those circumstances a year ago, there was very much this like ex-player fetish. And Arteta, having played for both Everton and Arsenal, was sort of a leading candidate for both of those clubs, while you had Ancelotti out there, who had just been sacked by Napoli, as sort of just the the best candidate, just from a big name sort of resume standpoint. 
And, and there's a feeling that Arsenal kind of overthought it going for Arteta. Well, Everton just grabbed the better manager and the guy with the proven track record in Ancelotti. And it's interesting to see where these two clubs are a year later, Everton beating Arsenal, and they're up there near the top of the table while Arsenal are floundering the way they are. So, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, uh, how these two situations play out, if Everton can maintain what they're doing and if Arsenal can, can rebound. But nevertheless, a year in, it's kind of interesting to reflect. I mean, both those clubs now are kind of linked because of those managerial hires having taken place in virtually the same day, and they were linked with both managers, and one went one way, one went the other, and, and here we are a year later, so... I mean, I when when Arteta was was signed, hired and signed, uh, I thought that this was going to be uh, something that was going to be special, and that he was going to be given the time. But I'm telling you right now, Mossy, I, I I'm thinking that there that that he is he is in a precarious type of situation here, and the bloom is well off the rose when it comes to that. So I don't know what's going to happen here because it's 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 not good, and they uh, the daggers are are out much sooner. Um, and in a way that I did not anticipate. But this is Arsenal, and Arsenal going to Arsenal. You want to uh, you want to talk about this uh, Florentino Perez situation, Mossy? Going on with that Super League, uh, Super League Euro Super League back in uh, back in the news? Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, uh, Real Madrid held kind of a annual shareholders meeting of sort, and. Uh, he started talking about uh, how in these pandemic times, soccer needs to get more creative and figure out different forms of revenue and they need to be open to new ideas. And he didn't explicitly mention the Super League, but because he's been one of the people driving that train, everybody sort of put two and two together and figured that's what he's talking about. And this comes on the heels of the Barcelona president, Josep Bartomeu, who resigned recently. On the way out the door, his parting shot was, and by the way, Barcelona fully support a Super League. So so yeah, that whole kind of business about a European Super League is kind of in the air again. Uh, uh, what, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I, look, if you're going to do it, just do it. All right. Stop talking about it. Figure it out. It, it'll be It'll be incredible. It'll be awesome. And those that aren't involved are still going to survive. You know, I want to see the haves in this world of haves and have-nots play more games against better competition on a consistent basis. And if this is something that does that, all right, that's uh, that's that's what uh, that's what I want to you know that's what I want to see. I think you're going to get real pushback, not just a practical pushback from uh, other. Uh, other teams and other ownership and other leagues, but I think I think the general consensus out there is going to be that this is that this is a not that is not only is this not a good thing for the game, but this could be incredibly detrimental for the game as a whole. I'm not I'm not sure that that's the case, but I think that the general public out there and the and certainly the media I think is going to come come very very hard against this uh, this type of thing. But, you know, it's, it's an ongoing type of thing, and, and yeah, just if you're going to do it, do it, and let's, uh, let's go on. Mossy, anything uh, from any other leagues out there that you want to talk about, um, anything that, uh, that, that jumped out at you? Yeah, actually, a couple of things. You know, just to play off, our, our, we had a lengthy chat about Dortmund last week and how this is a club that sort of can't figure out what it wants to be. And, and that, that storyline really... Gained a lot of steam this week. Rory Smith wrote an excellent column about it. I saw Keith Costigan tweeting about it. And, and so right on cue, they go out this weekend and uh, Yusufa Mokoko scores at 16 years, 28 days, becoming the youngest score in Bundesliga history. But of course, Dortmund lose to Union Berlin 2-1. So at, at, 
we're, we're sort of celebrating another great Dortmund young talent off the assembly line. And isn't it great that this club gives an opportunity to these young players and does a, such a good job developing them? And oh my God, they're going to be able to turn around and sell this kid in a couple of years for 100 million euros and turn this incredible profit. But oh, by the way, they lost and continue to fade in the Bundesliga race. And so it just sort of really drove home this contrast that we talked about last week. Uh, Bayern did win uh, this top of the table clash with Leverkusen. Leverkusen have to be absolutely sick about the way this game ended because it was 1-1, just seconds left. The referee was about to blow the final whistle. They had the ball deep in their own half, just kind of knocking it around. And then a sloppy giveaway, it ends up at Lewandowski's feet and he scores with a deflected finish. And so it ends up 2-1 Bayern, both goals by Lewandowski. So Bayern back atop the table. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention, um, I don't know if you saw, but AC Milan beat Sassuolo 2-1. AC Milan scored a goal six seconds into this game. Um, fastest goal in Serie A history. I, I was like, I was sitting there and I saw on Twitter that Milan scored after six seconds. And I'm like, how is that possible? You almost think it has to be like they just shot it off the opening kickoff and the, the goalkeeper wasn't paying attention or something. And then I went to see the video of it. It was actually a beautiful goal. Right off the kickoff, Chalianolu like charged up the field with the ball and slipped this perfect through ball to Rafael Leon, who then uh, burst past all the defenders and slotted home. It's amazing how you could conjure up that nice a goal six seconds into a game. And it's amazing because last week I was watching this Copa Libertadores game between Santos and Gremio, two Brazilian clubs, and Santos scored 12 seconds into that game. Uh, and that was a case where Gremio actually had the opening kickoff and they played it to this young midfielder, Jean-Pierre, who I love, but he didn't cover himself in glory in, on this play. He decides to play it backwards to a center back who wasn't expecting it. And so he misplayed the pass and a Santos striker who had, Caio Jorge, who had struck, uh, was streaking down the field from the opening kickoff. He intercepts the pass and rounds the keeper and scores. So it's amazing. In, in just a few days here, there were two goals scored like incredibly seconds into games. I mean, when you played, like how, how long mentally did it take you to get into a game? Like if off the kickoff, if there was a ball, ball played to you 10 seconds into the game, is there a chance that you just wouldn't have been all there yet and hadn't quite switched on? I mean, what, what, from your point of view, how is it like the first few seconds right after a match kicks off? Uh, all right, Mossy. Um, well, I can vividly remember playing in an open cup game where, because <laughs> it's all the best laid plans, right? Uh, I remember getting everybody together and, you know, doing a rah-rah type of thing. And, you know, we, we, you know, we're a better team and we need to prove it right from the start and make sure that we're on them. And so physically and mentally, we felt like we were there and we went out and the, uh, this, this lower division team came out and scored in like the first uh, minute. And it was me who played a bad back pass uh, that got intercepted and they went in and uh, went in and scored. So look, you, you, you do work yourself into games. And I think probably the most frustrating thing, not just for players, but even more so maybe for managers and coaches, is when you have this game plan. Well, nobody game plans for letting a goal in in the first minute. And then it all goes to hell uh, because you have to adjust and now you're, chasing, now you're chasing the game. And it really, like I said, you throw so much out the, out the window. But there are certainly players that from a mental perspective aren't yet turned on to what is about to happen. And it could be that they need a jolt either from one of their teammates or something actually happens in the game. But I, I, I don't have the answer. I don't know. I, I can't tell you exactly what makes somebody prepared right from the first whistle or what somebody does or doesn't do that makes them ill-prepared when that whistle blows and makes them have to work into the game. But you're absolutely right that it exists. And sometimes 
That's the difference between winning and losing. You can you can absolutely lose the game in the first couple minutes of the of the game because you're not there physically uh, or or mentally. And then nobody will say, "Well, you weren't prepared," or "The coach didn't do this," or something like that. And sometimes it's just the soccer gods uh, doing what they uh, doing what they do. Um, okay, Mossy, um, Fief Pro Men's Best Eleven came out. Uh, do you want to read them or do you want me to read them? All right. I will uh, make sure that I have them correct. No, no, no. It's no. I have them. I have them right here, and I want to make sure uh, that we uh, that we read them. This is the best eleven male players as decided by FIFA Pro, the Football Players um, Association. I guess what we, what we would call it. Um, okay, goalkeeper. Mossy should be happy. Uh, Liverpool and Brazil goalkeeper Alisson. Um, defenders. Liverpool, also England defender, Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, Alfonso Davies from FC Bayern Munich and obviously Canadian national. Came by way of Major League Soccer and uh, Vancouver. Virgil van Dijk, you know him, you love him, uh, even though he's injured. He certainly had a hell of a year, Liverpool and the Netherlands. Sergio Ramos from Real Madrid uh, and Spain, a perennial type of star and featured Many, many times, I'm sure, on this list. Midfielders, you get three. Um, Thiago from Liverpool and uh, slash Bayern Munich because he made that move, I guess. So that's what they're talking about there. Um, and Spain. Kevin De Bruyne from Man City and Belgium. Joshua Kimmich from uh, Bayern Munich and Germany. And then we move on to the forwards. And I don't think that there's a lot of surprise. We talked about it last week. Robin Lewandowski and the incredible year that he has for Bayern Munich and uh, for Poland. Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm, I'm hard-pressed to look at any of these decisions, Mossy, and shake my head and say, no, that, that, that's, that's not right. I, I got... I think I got no problem with any of these. Do you have any problem with any of these? No, I agree. You know, I know people love to argue this stuff, but as these sorts of teams go, they actually got it pretty right this year. The one omission would be Thomas Muller, who had a fantastic year for Bayern. So you, you could definitely make a case for finding a place for him in there. The only other thing that people bumped up against was that the FIFA Best Awards were announced the very same day, and we'll get to those in a, in a minute. Um, and Manuel Neuer won for Best Goalkeepers. So... It, it felt a, a tad incongruent that on the same day that Manuel Nora is, is, is crowned the FIFA goalkeeper of the year, that he's not the starting goalkeeper on the FIFA Pro 11. Uh, but, you know, Allison is like right there, too, if you're talking about the best goalkeepers in the world. So there was no total head scratcher here for sure. I mean, all 11 of these guys are absolutely worthy in the conversation, top two or three in the world at their respective positions. So uh, I agree with you. I don't have a big issue with this at all. I hate when voters in these things say, okay, well, since he won this, we don't have to give him this. Uh, and especially when it comes to goalkeepers. If if you have a goalkeeper that wins goalkeeper of the year, then that person should be in the running for MVP, okay? And and so I, I, I understand what you're saying. It drives, it drives me nuts. You feel like you've satisfied him or her by giving him that award, and so therefore it absolves you from including them or even considering them for something else. If this is the best player, then the player should be able to win. And it's not that they can't, but this is kind of what we do as humans. But, but then they should, they should obviously be involved in, in that kind of stuff. All right, some other ones that you wanted to mention, other awards. 
Well, so the big one, Robert Lewandowski was crowned uh, Player of the Year, the FIFA Best Award. Ronaldo finished uh, second. Messi finished third. You know, both you and I said last week that we thought Lewandowski should win it and that he would win it, and he did. Um, it is interesting to me, when you look at, back at the past winners, you realize how rare it is that that type of player wins these awards. Um, even though, you know, we all sort of intuitively understand that that goals win games, and if you have a guy that scores the most goals, it, it, that's an incredibly valuable commodity. But when it comes time to crown best player in the world, it rarely is that, you know, and I don't want to sell – Lewandowski short and act like he's just some clumsy goal poacher. I mean, he's a talented player, but you know the type of player I mean, that just out and out target forward finisher. If you look at, uh, you know, it tends to be who wins these awards, more Messi, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Zidane, even the center forwards that give it to guys like the Brazilian Ronaldo and George Weah, or guys that have a bit more skill and flair and creativity to their games. They're guys that I would describe as great players who happen to play center forward, while Lewandowski is a great center forward, if that makes any sense. Um, and so it is somewhat rare that you think the guy guys that scored so many goals would, would be often crowned with these awards, but it's actually not the case. If you look through the list of all the FIFA Player of the Year award winners, uh, it, it's not the case. So it's kind of interesting for Lewandowski to win it. Well, I mean, we called it last week, and it's it's a no-brainer for for what he for what he has done. Before we leave this and, and move on to some other stuff, I, I do want to go back and circle back to Alfonso Davies. I mean, what what a year for not just a player, but a human being for him to go through. And what he has accomplished in such a short period of time. Because I remember as he was having this incredible success and continuing not just to start, but to star for Bayern Munich, there was still those out there, and maybe even a a part of me at times, that was a little hesitant to say what we were all thinking was, this is the best left back in the world. I mean, who just happens to be a player who came from MLS, who just happens to be a player that nobody really saw doing what he has done. But I, I'm I'm so happy for him, and I'm and I'm so happy that the the voters got this right, and that he is absolutely deserving to be amongst these greats of the game. Uh, for what he for for what he did and the way that he played that position and I know playing for Bayern Munich you get to play that position in a very different way than a lot and most of other teams out there but you still got to put yourself in the position to be at Bayern Munich to get to the first team to be even be considered as a starter and then when you get on the field not just to you know to 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 do it in an adequate way but do it in a starring capacity. It is, uh, it, it's wonderful. Uh, I hope it's not one and done. He had a little bit injury over the last uh, few months. Uh, he, he, he seems to be back. Um, and so I hope that he uh, regains that, that position and that, that form and just continues it on. And that this is just a start of what is a long and successful career for one of the great players ever, uh, even already to come out of uh, out of North America and certainly the pride of Canada and the pride of Major League Soccer that they produced a player right now that is sitting uh, as one of the 11 on the FIFA Pro Men's Best 11 for the past year. Amazing, amazing stuff. Um, all right, Mossy, we're going to take... Though. Oh, you got something else. Okay, oh, go no, ahead. I got a few more things here. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, 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 Mossy. Go, uh, go. Uh, it is interesting, though. Bayern folk were... Uh, were actually kind of annoyed. Uh, they felt like they didn't get the full coronation that they deserved for a year where they feel like they towered over the, the rest of 
the competition. Yes, Lewandowski did win the FIFA Best Award, but very annoyed that the Ballon d'Or wasn't given this year. And I agree with them. I think that's ridiculous decision uh, by France football and Lewandowski presumably would have won that. So he missed out on that. They were annoyed that Alfonso Davis, who you just mentioned, didn't win the Golden Boy Award, which goes to the best player uh, playing in Europe under the age of 21. Holland won it instead. Uh, Alfonso Davis finished third behind Holland and uh, Ansu Fati. Uh, you know, there were little slights, like, like I mentioned, Neuer and, and, and Thomas Muller not getting into that uh, FIFA Pro best 11. But the biggest one of all that, that they were annoyed by is Jurgen Klopp won the FIFA best award for manager of the year uh, 2020 over Hansi Flick. Marcelo Bielsa finished third. And, and people, Bayern folk, couldn't believe that. And, and I, I kind of agree with them. I mean, I love Jurgen Klopp. I think he's uh, indisputably the best manager in the world. But if we're talking specifically which manager had the best 2020, then I don't know how you don't give it to Hansi Flick. Uh, and, you know, Mourinho, who to go back to, you know, him having a bit of a complex over Klopp, he even had a pop at, at, at Klopp over that. He, he joked in his press conference that like, well, I guess Hansi Flick didn't win enough trophies. We, we might need to invent a couple of new competitions for him to win so he can get that award. So what did you make of that? Hansi, uh, Jurgen Klopp getting it over Hansi Flick. Yeah, that's a little strange. That one's a little strange. And, but, and then to go back to your other thing that you said, and, and it, it, we, we talked about it. How the hell can Alfonso Davies be in your best 11, but he doesn't win Young Player of the Year? How, how does that work? I don't understand that. That, that. that makes no sense at all. And then this will be my last thing here. Uh, the France football, they didn't give out a Ballon d'Or this year, but they did instead uh, come up with this all-time 11, I don't know if you saw this, uh, which they finally mm -mm. unveiled after weeks of voting, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, the team, just to rattle it off, uh, Lev Yashin and goal, the great Soviet keeper, uh, and then they did a back three of Cafu, Beckenbauer, and Maldini, and then the midfield, you have Xavi and our former Fox Sports colleague Lothar Mateus as the two central midfielders. They have Pelé and Maradona as kind of wide uh, midfielders, and then a front three of Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, and the Brazilian Ronaldo as a center forward. And the only thing I'm going to say about that is, look, uh, my take on these best 11s is you can fudge positions a little bit uh, to get all the sexy stars in there and have a team that's uh, somewhat unbalanced, but you can't take it to a point where it's completely farcical. And in my opinion, they did cross that line here. I mean, Pele is playing a position on this team where we basically turn him into Ashraf Hakimi, and it just makes no sense. And so I, you know, looking at that team for people who that saw it, look, I, the, the Brazilian Ronaldo is my favorite player of all time, my hero. I love him. I'll go to my grave thinking if not for knee injuries, he would have been the greatest player of all time. But in, in that front quintet of Pele, Maradona, Messi, Ronaldo, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, and the Brazilian Ronaldo, he's probably the one that could go and you could play Pele as kind of the quasi center forward with Messi on the right, Cristiano on the left, Maradona as the 10, Xavi and Lothar Mateus sitting. And then if you insert a second center back alongside Beckenbauer, like a Bobby Moore or somebody like that, then you have a team that's still unbalanced but makes a bit more sense. I, I thought the way they did it, it was kind of farcical and frankly kind of spoiled the whole thing. Everybody was making fun of the formation and focusing more on that than talking about the actual players that made it. So, Mossy, my friend, why do you get so riled up? And why, why do you let this happen to you? Oh, my God. Why do, you, why do you take the bait on something like this? This is designed to irritate you, all right? And you fell hook, line, and sinker for, for, uh, uh, for this. Who would you say was in goal? Uh, Lev Yashin. 
He's a legendary Soviet goalkeeper. The Hell last goalkeeper no. to win the Bobby Oh, oh I know him. I know him. He owes me money, that guy. I'm, no, I'm not having that. Uh-uh. That's, I'm not having that. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to take another quick break here. And um, when we come back, we're going to uh, – oh, yeah. You know it. You love it. Ask Alexi. Oh, yeah, it's on tap right around the corner. Don't go away. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, we're back and it's that time. Oh, yes. Time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there. And even if you don't, you know what? Just just send us some questions, comments. Well, we do like it and appreciate when you do use that hashtag. It makes it a little easier for us. Anyway, we take a few of those uh, questions and comments each week as we have done this week. Uh, Mossy, what do the people want to know about this week? Uh, first up, at Bradrick. Alexi, why is it you feel you have to promote MLS? You played on an international stage. We both know the best young Americans are getting better plying their trade in the top leagues in Europe. Just wondering. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I am accused at times of being a shill for Major League Soccer. I I, I make no bones about it. I am incredibly proud and of of what Major League Soccer has done in its 25 years um, and that I played a small part of it. Uh, I am human. I bring my biases and my baggage and my history when I talk about things and when I react to things. But it's not that I feel I have to defend Major League Soccer. It's that I want to. Um, this is my domestic league, warts and all. It has plenty of flaws, plenty of problems, and plenty of legit criticisms for it. But I do feel at times that it is unfairly maligned. I do feel at times that it is unfairly critiqued and uh, and criticized. And I do feel that the perspective that many have is from a place where they don't have a lot of the information and don't necessarily watch a lot of it and therefore don't necessarily understand it and just make these proclamations about either the players or the uh, environment, the culture, the fans, the business, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. And they're talking out of the you know what. And so I do feel that MLS is something that is worthy and deserves to be defended. And so that's, that's why I do it. I do it to give balance, to be, uh, to be quite honest. Now, you know, at times certainly puts me in a situation where people can accuse me of shilling for uh, Major League Soccer. I want Major League Soccer to be successful. There are people in the American soccer community that don't want Major League Soccer to be successful. If Major League Soccer is successful, soccer is successful in the United States. I know it's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. I know that people, uh, as I said, rightfully and fairly at times criticize it for its structure. But you can't deny the fact that in 25 years, Major League Soccer has become and they have created the most successful American professional soccer league in history, North American professional soccer league uh, in history. And so that's 
that's part of the reason why I do it. I don't feel I have to do it. I feel that I want to do it, and I feel that this is an entity, and these are people, uh, whether it's the players on the field or whether it's uh, the folks off the field, that deserve to be defended. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't recognize the value of players playing over in Europe and playing in good quality environments against good quality uh, opposition. Absolutely. I, I, I want the best for each and every player, but there is not one size fits all. There is not one pathway to the best or to, the, to success. And I just like to point that out. And so, look, I, I am so proud and happy of what someone like Weston McKinney is doing. Uh, or, you know, the list goes on and on in terms of the, the real talent that I think we have that is brewing uh, and that is playing at big clubs and big environments out there. That's great. But I also recognize that there is real talent and even unrecognized talent that exists in MLS. And sometimes you need a champion. Sometimes you need someone that's going to defend. And as I've said time and time again, it's not me putting my head in the sand. It's not blind faith. It's not propaganda or anything like that. I recognize and I be the first to admit about the problems that MLS has and the, the, the distance and the length that MLS still has to go uh, and needs to go in order to grow and to be on the level of some other teams and other leagues uh, around the world. But it's a lot farther than people realize, and I think it deserves a whole lot more credit than people, than, than people normally give it. And so that's why, uh, that's why I do it. Mossy, anything uh, to say about that? Uh, no, no. That's, uh, okay. Uh, it's not really anything next. you can disagree <laughs> with there. I mean, you could disagree with it if you wanted to. No, 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 no. I, I think that's a fair answer. Hey, um, by, hey by the way, Mossy, Mossy, hold on, Mossy, before we go on. Yeah. Relative to defending MLS, okay? I don't know if you've heard, but, you know, we're doing this in a live type of environment in that things are happening while we're doing this. But Miguel Herrera just got fired. And that is because of the work of an MLS team. And while I don't want to celebrate anybody getting fired, okay, and I know we make sport out of coaches getting fired, um, you know, this is something that came because of the success and because of the level that an MLS team brought. Now, it's not all because they lost to LAFC, but it came on the heels of a devastating type of loss to an MLS team. And that uh, that should be said. So anyway, breaking news uh, as we are recording this, as I've said, on Monday, December 21st. All right. Next question, Mossy. Well, and, and, and just one note, his firing was communicated to him via walkie talkie. You know, he's. <laughs> at really dan wiener or weiner this is ironically a question about go with wiener um, when in doubt you always go with wiener in a situation like this yeah. go all right uh why do american announcers get crap for mispronouncing names but nobody cares that british announcers can't pronounce pulisic so the 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 christian pulisic thing is interesting because we made a point, I say we, the American soccer media, when he kind of broke out to, to ask him, what do you want to be called? Uh, you know, and you can actually go uh, to my friend and colleague, Taylor Twelman. He has it actually on video where, where they ask him. And, and so that's why we in the American soccer community call him Christian Pulisic, because that's what he wanted to be called. And look, when you can do that, that's what you, that's what you do. Now, the whole, the whole, game and situation and culture of pronunciations is an evergreen type of topic when it comes to uh, announcers. And there is a spectrum of ways to ultimately do it. You want to be respectful, 
but you also want to be you don't want to be pretentious in the things that in the things that you do and sometimes you know names that if you did it the exact way that it is pronounced in the country of origin, in the culture that it is from, it would sound like a completely different person and name than when you do it uh, on television. So sometimes we Americanize it or uh, English, Englify is it? I don't know, but we, we make it so that it is palatable to the English speaking ear. I don't think that that necessarily is a bad thing. Um, it's, you know, sometimes, and, and, and there's very different ways of doing it. For example, friend uh, uh, Derek Ray, he is adamant and militant about pronunciation. Um, and, you know, he will call the embassies uh, of, the, of the nationalities to make sure that he gets exactly what the pronunciation is. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, someone like John Strong, I think he recognizes that if he were to do that at times, he would, he would sound a little pretentious and it would take away from the actual call that he, that he is doing. And so he tends to do it a little differently. And by the way, this is not a, a judgment on, any, on anybody that I'm talking about here. There's just different ways that, of going about doing it. To answer your question in the simplest form, it's because we're American, okay? And I know that sounds like... Um, like I'm being overly sensitive and that inferiority complex that I talk about all the time is is uh, is in full is in full effect and to a certain extent it is but that it is coming from what a lot of people around the world don't consider a soccer culture and therefore coming from people that they don't consider credible relative to a soccer culture it is that much easier to criticize or point out or ridicule when somebody from American broadcasting is doing it as opposed to somebody else. Masi, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of on the John Strong side of that because I know whenever I'm listening to Tim Vickery, and Tim Tim is very defensive about this, but whenever he's speaking in English and he says a Brazilian's name, he then says it in the authentic Portuguese way, you know, like Ronaldinho, Fred. But when you plop that onto an English sentence, it's jarring. It takes me out of what he's talking about. It's just, and, and like, I don't know. I mean, I, I just naturally, when I'm speaking Portuguese, it's Ronaldo. When I'm speaking English, it's Ronaldo. I don't know. I can just sort of adjust just to, to make the sentence kind of flow more naturally. And yeah, Tim Vickery is adamant that, no, I'm going to say it the authentic way, no matter what. And Derek Ray feels that way too. So as you mentioned, there's, there's different schools of thought and I respect all of them, but I have to say, I come down on the John Strong. I mean, when you're calling a game, why would you want to say anything that's going to be sort of jarring to the ears of the viewer to, you know, a, a sound coming out of your voice. that's kind of unnatural. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, exactly. And, and, you know, while you want to be respectful and if, if, if players give you what they want to be called, you try to do that. But ultimately in a strange way, it's not even up to the players. The, the, the soccer culture ultimately is going to decide what that person is called. And to your point, I think you do have a responsibility of not bringing people out of the game with an instance where it is jarring. And your ability to tell that story and not to have words or phrases that, you know, that, uh, that peak for the wrong reasons and get people out of the flow and the story that you're telling. I think that, I think that it is, that is, and you know, whether it's Vickery or Derek Ray, I mean, they, they do it and that's part of their performance and it, and it's a traditional part of their performance. So it's, it doesn't take me out as much, but, um, and I also think you have to know who you are, who you're speaking to and who you are. 
And that's different for each and every person. So good question. But ultimately, the reason why is because we're American. And it's just the way that it is. And in time, that'll change. The, the Ronaldo thing is funny because, you know, what I know from covering these international tournaments, uh, these announcers, they, they, they're very anal about pronouncing like the left back on Slovenia correctly, but then they'll say like Ronaldo. So it's like you're, you're not worried about the biggest star in the world saying his name authentically correctly, because if you're applying that, that formula to his name, it would be Ronaldo. In Portuguese, the R is pronounced like an H, but but that's okay with the biggest star in the world to anglify it or whatever. But but we're going to quibble over, like I said, the, <laughs> some backup on, you know, Slovenia. But, you know. Well, the, big, the biggest one for me that I, I can't fathom and understand, and it does drive me crazy, is if there is a damn accent in the actual name that shows where the emphasis on which syllable it's supposed to be, why wouldn't you use it, okay? Martinez? No. No. The accent's right there showing you showing you how to say the damn word. Oh, Mossy. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. Uh, okay. Anything else, Mossy? All right. We'll end on a, a more lighthearted one with Christmas around the corner at Rapids Fan in SLC. Uh, wants to know, what kind of cookies does the Lalo's household leave for Santa on Christmas Eve? Ah, well, we are right around the corner, and I do have... Uh, they're not so little anymore, but, you know, we are, we are still waiting for Santa. You know, when they asked me about Santa when they were uh, a little younger and they were asking about Santa, I always used to say, look, you don't have to believe, okay? Because, you know, they were at that point where they were starting to suspect some different things and, they were, you know, stuff was creeping into their little minds. And I said, look, you don't have to believe, but why chance it, all right? If there is the possibility that this guy exists and he's gonna bring you presents, why would you wanna risk that and chance it by not believing in him, all right? What's, what's the worst thing that could happen if you believe in him, okay? So that was my exp explanation to them. We leave out, um, it ends up being, to be quite honest with you, we kind of pawn off cookies that I'm gonna say aren't as popular with uh, the rest of us, and we make uh, we make those available to Santa because let's be honest, we all know Santa is um, uh, has a has a big belly and a big appetite. Santa's going to eat anything, okay? He's not picky ultimately about the cookies out there. And so, for example, I love chocolate chip cookies. So there's no chance that I'm leaving chocolate chip cookies for for Santa. Maybe that's a little selfish. Uh, and and a little conceited in, in in the way that I'm thinking about it, and that I'm only thinking about my uh, gratification when it comes to cookies. But Santa's gonna eat the raisins, okay? The the raisin oatmeal or the, the you know the disgusting ones that that nobody else eats. So that's that's how we go about it. Um, we do leave uh, milk, and we do leave you know some carrots. Uh, you know, because he always likes to have those in his pocket for uh, for the reindeer uh, reindeer out there. I don't know, Mossy. Uh, do you have any Christmas cookie stories to tell? Not really. I don't. You know, I'm Jewish. I don't really celebrate okay. <laughs> Christmas all that much. But but you but you but you can still have some some Christmas time stories, right? Yeah. Uh, nah, I, I will nah. say. Uh, I will say. I'm uh, in a couple of days. I'm flying back to uh, New York to visit my parents. I'm very excited about that. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, so this is your first trip since, well, last week when we went to uh, MLS Cup, right? So are you excited? Are they excited? Actually, are they excited? Uh, I'm excited. I think they're lukewarm on it. You know, They're kind of enjoying the break. <laughs> 
Oh, Mossy, I love you. I love you. Well, I'm glad that, I'm glad that you get to uh, to go back there, and I'm glad that you get to uh, to see them. I know that uh, this. It's been a hell of a year, my friend. It has been a hell of a year. And that actually uh, segues uh, nicely into what is going to be my, uh, my one for the road. So we're going to take another real quick break here. And when we come back, uh, I will give you my one for the road as we wind down what, <laughs> as we can all agree, has been a hell of a 2020. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, we are back, and it's time for my one for the road. This is the last podcast before we go through uh, the Christmas period, uh, and we were talking earlier about Santa coming and uh, you know all the different holiday uh, plans that either people have or people have deferred uh, and have and have changed. And uh, I think you can all agree that. 2020 has challenges, challenged us in ways <laughs> that we, we never thought uh, we would be challenged. And uh, in a certain way, there is a, a sense of pride that I think we all feel coming to the end of this year. With all of the, you know, the, you know, the horrible things that have happened, uh, and there are plenty, uh, there is also a sense of accomplishment and, as I said, uh, pride, especially when it comes to the, uh, the soccer world. You know, I talked a little bit last week about, you know, uh, Major League Soccer and, and, and all of the work that went on and all the men and women that worked hard to put, put, a, put that on. But the reality is that, you know, the, the soccer world is, is incredibly big and incredibly vibrant and incredibly um, diverse, but we all have this, this thread and, you know, as we go through the holidays, and admittedly a holidays that is going to be unlike most of the holidays that any of us have ever experienced, uh, that connection and that thread that we have becomes much more important. And I know the thread that we have is soccer, and it takes us in all sorts of different directions and leads us to, to think about the game in, in very, very different, uh, different ways. And, and that's okay. You know, I, I love the fact, and one of the things that I miss about a normal type of existence are the conversations that I have, are the interactions that I have um, with people out there in my travels, and people that at times disagree with, with things that I say, uh, and sometimes very, you know, vehemently. But for the most part, and I've told you this before, for the most part, the soccer community, even though we may have very different and diverse types of ways of thinking about the game, there is a level of, of civility uh, and respect and even decorum out there when we're talking about the game. And so I, I, I hope that that continue, continues because I think it's one of those qualities about the game and of the soccer community that needs to continue happening. You know, I, I've sat in restaurants and in bars and in hotel lobbies and in airports. And I've had incredible conversations with American soccer people out there. As I said, some that agree with me, some that disagree with me. But 
um, the way that we think about this game is constantly evolving and constantly changing. And everybody plays a part. And it, it doesn't matter whether you're you know, on television uh, or whether you're a player or whether you're a coach or whether you're a supporter or whether you're doing a podcast. Uh, the American soccer community is, as I said, incredibly passionate, incredibly discerning, and incredibly vibrant because of that incredible diversity uh, that we have. And I just wanted to take a moment to recognize that at a time when we are, you know, once again, giving thanks and looking back at this incredible year over these next couple of weeks and looking forward to what we hope is going to be a much better and much more positive type of year in 2021. Um, you know, just give, just give thanks to this, the, this community that we have because it, it, it is ours and it will be there for you, sometimes in ways that you never expected and sometimes in the greatest of ways. I, I truly believe that about the American soccer community, despite, you know, despite our differences at times and despite our you know, often uh, very animated and heated type of uh, disagreements that we have when it comes to where we should go. We, we share this and uh, it's awesome. And so while you are back home, whether it's Mossy back home with his family or anybody else, even uh, so many people that, that can't be with their families and, and, and are distant and are experiencing in a holiday season like, like no other, just know that you are still part of an extended family. And that extended family is the soccer community. And it, as I said before, it's, it's a worthwhile community and it's a worthwhile family because of the warmth and the connection uh, and the belief and the work, and the wisdom, um, and, you know, the passion and the personality that it has. So here's to everybody out there, um, and continued connections and threads that bind us when it comes uh, to the game of soccer, and in particular, the game of soccer here uh, in the United States. Mossy, anything to say before we head out? Happy holidays to everybody, and a salute to our new producer, Jeff Hernandez. Two for two, absolutely crushing it so far. Alex Dowd, who? He did. He did, and he had to adjust. I threw him a, uh, you know, a, a curveball, and he adjusts like the great that he is potentially potentially going to be. We don't want to do too much, but uh, uh, we love him and we love everybody. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in each and every week and reviewing and subscribing and rating and uh, doing all the different things that you do. Uh, Merry Christmas. We will talk before the new year. Happy holidays to everybody else out there. I hope everybody has a, uh, a happy and safe one and everybody's doing the things uh, to keep ourselves and everybody else safe so that 2021 can be a return to whatever new normalcy it's going to be, but certainly much more positive. All right, as always, size the day. <laughs>